0: good welcome back to black and published a podcast for writers poets playwrights and storytellers of all kinds i'm your host nikisha elise williams an award-winning author two-time emmy award-winning producer publisher all that good stuff today we're talking with robert jones jr author of the prophets which is out right now from gp putnam's sons an imprint of penguin random house so i gotta tell y'all i read the new york times review of the prophets in january right before the book came out and i was like oh my gosh i gotta get this book so i can interview him for this podcast i think this was even before the podcast debuted so when i finally got the interview to happen through dms no less um I am sup- I was super geeked, so let's get into it. Let me tell you about Robert, and then we're going to get into the show. All right. Robert Jones Jr. is a writer from New York City. He received his BFA in creative writing and MFA in fiction from Brooklyn College. He has written for numerous publications, including the New York Times, Essence, and the Paris Review. He is the creator and curator of the social justice social media community, Son of Baldwin, which has over 275,000 members across platforms. He's out there fighting a good fight, y'all. And The Prophets is his debut novel. So in this conversation, Robert and I discuss his 14 year journey to bring the prophets to life, his critique and interrogation of the Bible as a tool of oppression, why he prefers the title storyteller to writer and the ways black rebellion shows our humanity. Y'all, this is about to be a good episode. Welcome Robert to Black and Published. Let's get it. So, Robert, thank you first for being here. Um, I loved The Prophets, but I want to start from the beginning of your journey. And my first question is, when did you know that you were a writer?
1: When did I know I was a writer? Well, I can tell you that the first time I ever wrote anything, I was six, six years old. And um, my father, when I was four, bought me a comic book, Wonder Woman, who I love. And I fell in love with the comic book, but I didn't know how to write yet. But when I started to learn how to write, um, I started to rewrite the Wonder Woman adventures with me in them. And that was the first time that I realized that I liked writing. But it wasn't, you know, I'm still having trouble with calling myself a writer to this very day because for so long in my life, I really never had um, the support or the foundation that gave me the courage to think of myself as a writer, it was always either writing is a nice hobby for you to have, but you got to do this to make sure you're earning a steady paycheck, and um, you have good benefits and you and you're going to retire with a good pension. Um, Or it was but you're black. Mm. And so your writing is somewhere down here and you have to learn how to write like white people in order to be considered really a writer. So to this day, I still struggle with calling myself a writer, even after having published um, a novel. And maybe I want to think of myself as a storyteller because that makes me feel more in line with what I'm doing in terms of um, the tradition I'm writing in, Um, a tradition that starts, I think, with Phyllis Wheatley. Um, So maybe writer is connected in some way to whiteness. Mm -hmm. And if I want to do this art that we call writing, maybe I should be calling myself a storyteller because something about that feels inherently Black.
0: Ooh you took it there oh my gosh um i can i can see that how the word writer can seem almost oppressive whereas storytelling is more in the line of what black literary artists have been i guess forced to embrace and i think from you know zora neale hurston being the ultimate consummate folklorist storyteller feels very much like home But I want to know, because you say you, you were writing yourself into these Wonder Woman um comic comic book adventures. And as you struggle to embrace the word writer, was your art form then developed in a sense out of spite? Like it's something that you love to do, you indulged in it, but it was almost spiteful because you had the that other side saying, okay, but you gotta get a real job. What-
1: I always found it to be a place of comfort and a place where I could get answers to certain questions. When I look back at my six-year-old self writing these stories, I think now, oh, you were writing yourself into places you didn't see yourself in. That is how I came to writing, putting myself back into a place that I felt like I belonged but did not see myself. Um, So writing had never felt like bitterness to me. But it did feel like it was something that I had to keep to myself because I would be shamed for it if people knew that I loved it as much as I loved it. So I did write in private. Um, I never showed anybody my work. Um, It wasn't until fourth grade, I was about eight or nine years old, when my fourth grade um, teacher Um, Mr. Firestone, Howard Firestone, I wrote, we were assigned a story to write in class and I wrote a story and then he was the first person to ever tell me, you're a really good writer. And even then I didn't want to accept it because I had already been convinced that writing wasn't what I should be doing and it wasn't something that was important. But because I know now that writing or storytelling is my purpose, and I could see my my childlike self still writing anyway, because there was something inside—maybe the ancestral voice, maybe um, s- just um, a natural inclination. Something was telling me, "But you have to write," even as I was telling myself I wasn't a
0: writer. But even as you're telling yourself this, you go on to get a BFA and an MFA in creative writing and fiction. So what was that part of you that was defiantly saying, but no, this is what we're doing anyway. Fuck your feelings.
2: Let me tell you
1: the the hurdles and obstacles and denials. It took years and years of, it took before I was able to say, I want to pursue this professionally because I didn't get my BFA. I didn't go to college to be a writer until I was 31 years old. So I dropped out of high school, um, got my GED, um, waited a couple of years I was working, did my first semester when I was 21 years old, thinking that I wanted to be a psychologist because that made money, and did really good in the first semester and horrible in the second semester. So dropped out of college and started working full-time at Toys R Us. Um, making money and feeling completely unfulfilled, trying again in 1997 to go to college, this time thinking history should be my major. Enrolled in college, re-enrolled in college in 97, bombed out, dropped out again, worked, um, wound up getting a job at um, Bank of America, working for um, their HR department. Moved out of New York and everything, moved down to Charlotte, North Carolina. Wound up self-sabotaging and feeling a great deal of shame around that self-sabotaging because I got fired, but then realized that was actually a blessing in disguise. So I'm sitting at home, cleaning up my resume, ready to apply for another job that was not going to be my purpose when I saw an episode of the Oprah Winfrey show. And on this show, Oprah had a guest who said, um, you're running away from your purpose. And you know what your purpose is because it's that thing that has been following you your entire life that you keep pushing away. And it seems daunting and challenging to, to at whatever stage of life you're in to now pursue this purpose. But it's never too late. And don't think about the end goal. Think about the next step you have to take in order to make this goal a reality. And I said, "Okay." I'm at the unemployment office about to apply for unemployment benefits. And there's this sign, this poster board that they have up. And it says at the top, if you want to be a. And then they have a column of things and then the next column says, then you have to and it tells you what you have to do. So I go down that list and look for writer and I find it near the bottom. And it says, if you want to be a writer, then you have to go to college. So I'm in. I'm 31 years old in 2002 in Charlotte, North Carolina, far from home. And I said, am I going to go back to college as a 31-year-old with all these 17 and 18-year-old kids, and I'm going to feel ashamed because I'm so much older and I'm now trying to get my degree? I said, I got to do it. I, I, I have been putting this off for way too long. I have to do it. So I packed up, called my mother, said, Ma, I want to move back to Brooklyn. She said, Your room is still here. Went back to school, lowest grade I got, A minus, decided creative writing was the major, went on to get my MFA, and long story short, finally, a writer. It, it sounds to me like the only
0: offering that you would accept, your soul would accept, and college would accept from you was a genuine one. And that was one of being of pursuing what had been following you since you were six.
1: And all this time feeling like a failure because I was not pursuing my purpose. I was pursuing these other things that I was being told I should be pursuing and failing at the things that I, to- I was told I should be pursuing. But then when I finally aligned with what I was, I think, born to do, it came, I don't want to say it came easy, but it made me feel like I was doing the thing I was supposed to be doing. And so I did it with a great amount of verve and energy and commitment.
0: And that time between you dropping out of high school and following other avenues before coming to the point where you enrolled in Brooklyn college, were you still writing on the side for yourself or or had you completely abandoned it?
1: I had still been writing. I have never stopped writing since I was six years old. Even when um, I didn't think of myself as a writer, when I was 16, I um, went into a Black-owned bookstore for the very first time in Harlem. And I was browsing around the bookstore, and I didn't know what to buy because up until then, I had only been reading um, white writers because that, that was what was assigned in school. Um, they never assigned any Black writers. So I'm looking at all of these wonderful Black books, and I see this book called Mama by Terry McMillan. And that's her, that's her first novel. And I picked it up, bought it, took it home, and could not put it down. That was the first time in my life that I had ever read a, a novel where I was just like, "Oh my god, oh my god, every page." And I was like, "You can do this? You can write about your own life as a black person and the things that happen to you and this is worthy of something that could be published in a novel?" And then I I tried to write my first novel right after reading that. Didn't never finished it because I didn't I didn't realize how hard novel writing was. Um, but I, I, I tried. But encountering that work by Terry McMillan let me know in a small way. You could probably be a writer. I didn't want to I didn't want to believe it. I didn't want to tell myself that. But the voice inside was like, OK, I'm going to show you somebody who, who did it so that you can follow in that path. And it took me so long, but I never stopped writing and I eventually followed that path.
0: Following that path, did you begin to formulate your concept for the prophets while you were in school? Because I believe I think I heard you say in an interview, it took you like 14 some odd years to, to, to get to this story that we have now.
1: Yes, that is absolutely true. So I was in my final semester of undergrad in 2006 and I had already been accepted into the MFA program. And part of the requirements was I was going to have to have some writing ready for workshopping and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So I um, was thinking about, okay, what am I going to have prepared? What am I going to write about? So I'm looking through all the stuff that I had previously written over the years and none of it really resonated. I was like, no, this is not good enough. But there had always been this like thing flitting around in my head about writing about a Black queer protagonist living in a time period where we have never seen a Black queer, queer um, protagonist, and that was in Antebellum Slavery, because I was also an Africana Studies minor. And whenever I would read these works, um, the Black queer figure doesn't show up until about the Harlem Renaissance. Um, Wallace Thurman wrote The Black of the Berry* in 1929, and he begins to touch on it in that novel. So... I said, "Am I going to be able to write about this? People going to be mad. Um, we've never seen anything like this before. Black people are tired of hearing about slave stories, um, and the hoteps will say that this is me attempting to push some sort of gay agenda. Do I want to? Do I want that smoke? Essentially, but when." Um, I did my first semester in that MFA program, and um, Stacy Durasmo, who was my fiction tutorial instructor, gave us this assignment to find objects that a character we're thinking about might possess. And I found a pair of shackles on the street in Brooklyn. That was my sign that I should be writing this book. And that is when I first started to sketch out the very earliest details of what would eventually become The Prophets. That was in September, October of 2006. And I had been writing and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting, and rewriting for 14 years what would eventually become The Prophets.
0: Ooh. You found a shackle on the street in Brooklyn?
1: In the garbage, like on the, on the sidewalk with the black garbage bags waiting to be picked up by sanitation the next morning. A pair of shackles, right there on the ground, and I, I like to this day, I wonder, like, what were shackles doing, and who threw these out? Like, where did they come from? Um, but that was secondary to the to the primary thing, which was, this was my permission to write this story. Yeah, that was
0: divine providence for sure. Oh my gosh! And going through all the different sketches and formulations of the prophets, when did you ever know that it was ready?
1: Oh, that is such a good question. Because um, the first time I finished it, which was maybe in 2012, where I had a complete manuscript, beginning, middle and end, I knew it wasn't ready. It felt um, light and incomplete it felt like the language wasn't where it needed to be. It felt like the characters weren't as full as they should have been. But I knew that at that time, okay, the rest of this is me just gonna, I'm, I'm gonna have to keep revising it until it gets to a point where I feel like somebody else can read it. Um, and once I got it to that point, I let my husband read it. My husband is an attorney and a Virgo. And so extremely critical. And so I got feedback from my husband, and then I rewrote it again. And then um, I had a—I have a trusted friend, Osvaldo Oyola, who was an adjunct professor at NYU. And I said, could you read this and tell me if there's anything here, um, if I have something? And he read it and gave me his feedback. And then I revised it again. To answer your question, though, I could have kept writing this book even now. Um, even when I look at it now, I, I see things that I'd be like, mm, maybe I would take that sentence out and say it this way, or like that, I, I, I would keep writing it. I had to have other professionals tell me, you're done.
0: Mm-hmm. This,
1: is, this is the furthest, it, you need to take it. It needs to now go and be published. I, I think as an artist, as a storyteller, as a writer, I would have never known when it was done unless I had other people who I trusted, um, who I thought understood quality and art and such, tell me, okay, it's good to go, including my editor, Sally Kim. Um, otherwise I would have never let it go.
0: Okay, so I have two questions because as much as it's called black and publishing, we talk about those journeys, We have to talk about, you know, what are you doing in life? (laughs) Because writing is not really an art that pays often. So in all of this revision that you're doing and working diligently on your novel, what are are you teaching? What what are you doing to survive?
1: So when I was an undergrad, I was working three part time jobs. I was a tutor. I was a counselor in the English majors department. And I was um, a salesperson at the Scholastic store. So I was working three part-time jobs in undergrad. Then in grad school, um, I was working two part-time jobs. I was tutoring and working at the Scholastic store. Then when I finally graduated, I worked full-time at the Scholastic store before moving on to become a writer in the communications and marketing department of my alma mater at Brooklyn College, full-time. So all the time that I'm working, I've been working nonstop since I was 14 years old. I had summer jobs at 14, summer youth employment program here in New York City. Um, and then I started working at Toys R Us when I was 17, worked for them for 10 years, then worked for Bank of America, and so on. So I have not stopped working since I was 14. So that's part of also part of the reason why it took me 14 years to write this book is because I had to find the time outside of working full time to um have the energy because you know, after working a long day, when you come home, all you wanna do is eat, watch TV and go to sleep. Um, You don't feel like, okay, let me sit down at this computer and write for an hour or two. So what I had to do was train my muscle to wake myself up at three o'clock in the morning, which is the magic hour, the witching hour, where New York City is at its most quiet, where I can hear the voices of the spirits and the ancestors telling me what they need to tell me, write for an hour, go back to bed at 4 o'clock, wake up at 6 to get ready to go to work. I had to train myself to do that. And then I was riding on the subway and on the bus on during my commute back and forth to work. But to survive, to pay the bills, to, to buy food, to pay a car fare to get back and forth to work. I had to work. Like, there wasn't, like, I didn't have um, a sponsor or a sugar daddy or whatever you want to call it who was going to let me lay lay back so that I could create this art. I had to work hard. <laughs> and, 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 and some of the places I worked for were really um, taxing emotionally and psychologically as well as physically on um, very toxic environments. But I had to do it in order to take care of myself and eventually get this work out into the world.
0: Thank you for shedding light on that side of the story, because I don't feel like a lot of people understand that, like you know, writing is an art. It's also a sacrifice because it's solitary and you have to find the time. And it's like you can ostracize all others in the name of it because you have to get it out but you can't ignore everything because you have to survive.
2: Yes. Yes.
0: My other question from that initial statement is so after you let other people read what got to be a polished enough first draft, what was your process of agent and editor and eventually publication?
1: Okay. So When I was in the MFA program at Brooklyn College, they give you a little bit about what your next steps should be like basic outline. You should be looking for a literary um, agent. This is how you would find a literary agent. And what they suggested is basically researching to find out who your favorite writer's agent is and then trying to pitch that person by writing a letter as to um, what your book is about, why you who you think the audience of your book is, and you know, so on and so forth. So before I did any of that, I said, I wanted to make sure I had a really strong manuscript. So I went through that process with my husband and my friend, Alfoldo. When I was ready, I started to Google to see, okay, who's Toni Morrison's agent, for example, um, and could not really find information on that. it wasn't readily available um, even when you Googled it. So what I did was I turned to um, friends of mine who I knew had already been published. One of those friends was Key Lehman, Layman, um, the author of Heavy. Um, and I said to Key I said, um, I think I'm ready to be published. I, I, or at the very least, I think I have something that I would like um, an agent to see. So um, Kiese was like, I got you. He took my manuscript and he gave it to his agent, PJ Mark, at Jank Lowe and and Um, And I didn't know how this process was supposed to work. So I thought I was sup- supposed to be interviewing these agents. So there were three agents, um, PJ Mark and two others. And I was interviewing them. I called them up on the phone. Um, requested to meet them in person and so on and so forth before I turn over my manuscript to them. And I just I was just told recently that that's unusual. That's not how this usually happens. So it was my ignorance that gave me the courage to do that. So um, I met with three different agents. Um, One agent ghosted me one agent wanted me to make the white people nicer. And then it's it's like Goldilocks, this bed's too hard, this bed's too soft, and then this bed is just right. right. Um, and PJ automatically got it. He read the manuscript, he was like, this is what you're doing, this is what you're doing, this is what you're doing, I see your vision. Let's work together on this manuscript to get it like as tight as we possibly can to show it to publishers so that's when i i felt like yes and what black writers have to understand or or writers of any marginalized identity have to understand is that the key is getting the right literary agent who understands who you are as a black as a black woman as a as a black queer person whatever and knows where you cannot be compromised and where you will not compromise on your art. Because that is the person who fights for you when you go to get published, who, who can steer you in the right direction in terms of who you want to be published with. Um, otherwise, you find yourself lost and compromised on um, people who will tell you, well, you have to change this character from a black woman to a white woman and then, and, you know, stuff like that um and so PJ and I worked on the manuscript for about a year it was then ready to go to a publisher and PJ said to me be prepared for rejections because that is a normal part of the process it'll take about a month for these publishers to get back to us about your manuscript um and so be patient so um that was early march about 20 days later, um, PJ calls me up and tells me that seven publishers want to publish this book. So that's unusual because I was waiting for him to say, OK, seven publishers just rejected you. That's what I was the call I was expecting. He said seven publishers want to publish you. And of course, there were other publishers who didn't that, that rejected it. But I was just surprised that there were seven that wanted it. So, what that meant was now I have to meet with all seven of these publishers. And we had to do it, we had a week to do it. So I would back-to-back meetings with all of these publishers to find out who I vibed with, what my gut was telling me, um, who I liked, who who I felt uncomfortable with, all of that kind of stuff. Because then those publishers are going to bid on the right to purchase your manuscript and what winds up happening is that goes to something called auction so it goes to auction and they're bidding on it and then the numbers come in and the low bidders kind of get you know outbid and so they're no longer um in the running and that's a hard process too because one of the um publishers who was outbid who was no longer in the running was one of the favorite, one of my favorites who I really wanted to work with, Um, but couldn't because of that auction process. And the funniest thing is the highest bidder was a publisher that I absolutely did not want to work with. And so I told my agent, I don't want to work with that publisher. He said, okay we go now down to the next level. So there are now three publishers on that level that came in second place. And you have to meet with all of them again Mm -hmm. to determine who you're going to pick out of those three. So went through that whole process and wound up picking um, Sally Kim at Putnam. And I should mention that of all the editors and publishers that I met with, Sally Kim was the only person of color. Everybody else was white. And that wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but it just showed me how white the industry is and that people of color are not often in positions of power or influence. Um, And so I went with Sally Kim, not just because she was a woman of color, she's, she's Korean American, but because when she and I talked, more than almost any other person, except one, um, did I feel this instant kinship with? Like I, like she was going to get this book, and and I do not regret it because when Sally and I worked on the book, every editorial um, uh, piece of feedback that she had only made the book better, in my opinion. Um, so that was a long process. So that process began in. 2019. Um, that was uh, like March, April of 2019. And The profits was published in January of 2021. So that whole time was Sally and I revising, um, me meeting with booksellers and, and the sales team at Putnam, everybody getting the thing together, picking covers, all of that kind of stuff. That was that whole process from 2019 to 2021 when the book was published.
0: Before I, I get to the reading, and I'm, I want to read the description as well, but you mentioned the process of picking covers. I opened, I took my cover off this morning and opened the spine and noticed the duenomen, the adinkra symbol. I have it tattooed on the back of my neck. And I was like, oh my gosh. So I have to ask, because this symbol means strength and humility, is that what you meant to imbue in this novel? that you wrote, the strength and the humility of the people and the ancestors, and that's why it's on the
1: spine. Amen. Ashe, Um, what I wanted to get across most, strength plus humility equals humanity. That's what what I kind of think. And what I wanted to ensure was imbued throughout this book, particularly for Black readers, was humanity. That we, we leave this book with a renewed sense of humanity and we know who we are so that we can no longer be, di- um, no one else could attempt to ever diminish us again because we know who we are. That was um, the, the symbol that they put on here. I did not know had that meaning until afterwards. Then I was like, oh. I, I looked at the symbol because they gave me a choice of symbols and I said that one. And I didn't know what the symbol meant, but it just looked to me like it held meaning. And then I learned later what that meaning was. And so I don't wanna call it a coincidence. I would just say that the ancestors were busy.
0: (laughs) Very. All right, I'm gonna read the description and I'll let you uh, give us a little uh, taste of it in your voice. All right, Isaiah was Samuel's, and Samuel was Isaiah's. That was the way it was since the beginning and the way it was to be until the end. In the barn, they tended to the animals, but also to each other, transforming the hollowed out shed into a place of sanctuary, a source of intimacy and hope in a world ruled by vicious masters. But when an older man, a fellow slave, seeks to gain favor by preaching the master's gospel on the plantation, the enslaved begin to turn on their own Isaiah and Samuel's love, which was once so simple, is seen as sinful and a clear danger to the plantation's harmony. With a lyricism reminiscent of Toni Morrison, Robert Jones Jr. fiercely summons the voices of slaver and enslaved alike. From Isaiah and Samuel to the calculating slave master to the long line of women that surrounds them, women who have carried the soul of the plantation on their shoulders. As tensions build and the weight of centuries of ancestors and future generations to come culminates in a climactic reckoning, the prophets masterfully reveals the pain and suffering of inheritance, but is also shot through with hope, beauty, and truth, portraying the enormous heroic power of love. Robert, it's all yours.
2: As they both peered into the edge... What had at first been black became white as James, the overseer, emerged from the army of trees. He was followed by three of the two Bob in his charge. You think they found somebody? Samuel said, oddly relieved that it was James and not the shadow. They say you can tell by the ears, Isaiah replied, looking at James and his men, by how the bottom pop part hang, but I can't see from here. Maybe they're just patrolling. Ain't it time for the call to the field? Uh huh. Neither of them moved as they watched the men work their way across bush and weed, still walking along the perimeter toward the cotton field, which stretched the horizon and sometimes looked as though its clouds touched the ones in the sky. Empty began to show signs of life as other people emerged from their shacks to look light in the face. Samuel and Isaiah waited to see who, if anyone, would acknowledge them. These days, only Maggie and a few others had kept them in their graces for some reason. The sound of the horn startled Isaiah. I ain't never gonna get used to that, he said. Samuel turned to him. If you right-minded, you don't have to. Isaiah sucked his teeth. Oh, you happy here, Isaiah? Sometimes, Isaiah said, looking into Samuel's eyes. Remember the water? Samuel found himself smiling even though he didn't want to. And one got to think and not just do to be happy, Isaiah said returning to the question Samuel had asked. I reckon we should get to thinking then. The horn sounded again. Samuel looked toward the sound over by the field. His eyes narrowed. Then he felt Isaiah's hand on his back. Isaiah held it there, calm and steady. The heat from it not making things worse. A moment which would pass too quickly and yet couldn't pass quickly enough. It was almost as if Isaiah were holding him up, pushing him forward, giving him something to lean on when the legs got a little weary. Still, Samuel said, not in the light. Still, Isaiah kept his hand there for a moment more. He then started to hum. He would do that sometimes while stroking Samuel's hair as they lay together in the dead of night, and that would make Samuel's sleep a bit easier. Samuel wore an expression that said, enough now, when in his head, etched across his mind in bright, shining voice, was Isaiah soothing. He always a soothing thing.
0: Mm. So my first question about the text of the book: You have it set in Vicksburg, Mississippi, and this is about forty years before the Civil War. And Vicksburg was one of the decisive battles that uh, Grant won to cut off the Confederacy from the Mississippi, and that eventually led to the to the winning of the war. Why Vicksburg as the setting?
1: Um, I knew that I wanted to set it in Mississippi because I find that Mississippi oftentimes in American history, is the site of the greatest anti-Blackness the country has ever seen. But it is also the site of the greatest Black resistance the country has ever seen. In addition, I wanted to pay homage to one of the greatest actors who has ever lived, um, Bea Richards, who was from Vicksburg, Mississippi. And also, as you astutely pointed out, um, it was a site of great um, disappointment in terms of the Civil War. Um, And I wanted um, to sort of recast Vicksburg to show um, anybody reading this book that there were no such thing as, as happy slaves, quote unquote. We were always in a state of rebellion and resistance, even when we didn't win. Most of the times we didn't win, but that never stopped us. And Mississippi seemed choice for that, as well as um, choice for um, because of, of the crop that um, our ancestors were forced to um, work on when, when they were enslaved there. So Mississippi for all of those reasons.
0: You mentioned that there was no such thing as a happy slave and there was always a state of resistance and rebellion. And I think you that comes through early in the book with Maggie making the biscuits for breakfast and in the grip of Samuel's fists and even in Amos and like he knows he's he knows he's participating in and doing something that is treacherous but it's all in the name of survival mm-hmm. and what I found that striking me as I continued to read the book was that on several occasions you mentioned about how the Black people outnumber them, the enslaved outnumber the masters, they all have this want to, to overthrow the order and yet they are afraid to do so because of the fear of what one enslaved person might say to curry favor.
1: Yeah, that's that, that kind of stays with us to this very day, this idea um, that um, rebellion will come with consequences. And of course, All revolutions come with consequences, but one must decide whether it is better to be a comfortable person or an uncomfortable liberated person. And I think that's one of the questions that the prophets um, ponders.
0: Yeah, you even have that line, uh, I just wrote it, the line about cotton, um, you know, things can comfort the, the things that can comfort can draw blood on page 364. And it, it, it's just like that sums up the tension, I think, in the book so well, is that Isaiah wants comfort. Samuel wants freedom. So many others are trying to find their way in between those two dichotomies. And yet they never are at ease.
1: Never at ease. That That is what um, slavery does. It dehumanizes the enslaver. Because to enslave another human being, you have to say, I forfeit my humanity. And then it brutalizes the enslaved. So from it, there is no, there is no safe space. There is no place of comfort. There is um, no being at ease um, because the enslaved are compelled to try to break the chains. And the enslaver is is compelled to try to hang on to the chain, so there is there is no ease ever to be found in that institution.
0: And even when they're trying to create it, either by loving themselves or having their own joy, confidence, pleasure, you you, you characterize all of those things as silent rebellions. So that makes me wonder because and, and even today, those are still, you know, black joy in the face of oppression is. It's black life in America it makes me wonder, you know, what are some of your own rebellions that you practice, you know, no matter what the condition of your life is, good or bad?
1: That is such a great question. That's the first time anyone has asked me that. What do I do as, as uh, to rebel? Well, um, I love myself fiercely mm. um, because I know there are a million people who or more than a million would love if this Black queer man hated himself so much that he could do something to destroy other Black and queer people. And I refuse. I, I try my best not to do harm to others or myself, which is the same thing, by the way. Harming yourself and harming others is the same thing. Um, I try to love others as fiercely as I can, especially Black people, um, which can sometimes be difficult when The Black person is under the throes of white supremacist capitalist patriarchy and they're upholding it themselves. It is hard to love a Black person who does that, but I try. I don't always succeed, um, but I try. Um, I uphold all things Black. So I buy Black books, Black music. um, I watch Black movies. um, I support the Black arts. Um, especially those who are, are are weary of and aware of the white gaze and try to ex- excise it from all of their their works. Um. I think the only the the big the biggest rebellion in a white supremacist capitalist patriarchal society is black queer love. I think that is the most revolutionary love we can find. Um. And when I say queer, I mean to encompass um, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, asexual, so on and so forth Um, in a black body. Because this whole society is built on the idea that this black body is only a machine and worthless otherwise. Mm. That is, I think, the biggest act of rebellion that I could do is to care for myself and other black people.
0: In the beginning of the novel, you introduce us to the ancestors, although they are not named in the beginning. And then there's also the interwoven story of uh, King Akusa and that that weaves throughout and the parallels that it has to what's happening with Samuel and Isaiah. And then in the end, which I love the reveal of Maggie and Io itself. I was like, oh, I have to go back and check. I was like, oh, he did that. Um, How do you see that guide of ancestors um, working to shape and form the nuances of Black life where we are so far removed from where we came from?
1: They are, in fact, the conduit to let us know that while an ocean separates us, we are connected by blood. So they want to tell us old stories they want and they want us to know that these old stories are not even old because time is not the way does not work the way we think it works that what is old is new and what is then is now um and will always be and so they start us off telling us we're going to tell you this story and you're not going to wanna embrace it because you're going to f- find it strange because you have been so estranged from who you are and who you who you really are you you have taken on the characteristics of the oppressor. So when you hear truth, it will feel like a lie, and you prefer to hear a lie, which sounds to you like truth. So they tell us who they are, in a sense, and then they say, well, let me, let us not fool you into believing that this is where your story begins. Your story begins much earlier than this. So let me show you how it used to be before whiteness has taken over and and taken over your mind and made you feel like it is better than you and it is something that you should aspire to so then we we meet King Nakusa and her village and um we meet um Kosai and Lewa and others as a precursor to Samuel and Isaiah and Maggie and Sarah and all of the others so that we can see this is what we were this is what we are now and if we can remember what we were this is what we can be so the ancestors act as our as our literal guides through this difficult work
0: also like how you acknowledge their vengeance which is a very southern uh, uh, i guess myth about how all those that were thrown overboard a simple in the deep and mm. the, um, the tidal ways I was like oh he's hard it's like The wrath of the of the hurricanes is is, is all the ancestors and that those those storms form off the Cape, which is off that West Coast coming from Senegal and all those countries. I was like, oh, I love it.
1: Yes, that was that was me doing my research.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I caught that line. I was like, oh, I see it. Um, But there's also the role and a very important role from even the very beginning of shadows and then the erasure of memory and the conflation of that memory as prophecy and all of those, I guess, intangible things working together to lead all of the characters to where they're they're going.
1: Yes. um, The book is steeped in Christian myth because what I'm doing is actually um, critiquing Christianity Um, as the point at which we are erased from who we are and who we were supposed to be. Um, It is the Christian invasion that strips us of our culture. Um, European colonialism strips us of our culture. The first things they did to our ancestors when they kidnapped them was tell them that their names are no longer their names, that they now have Christian names. And um, one of the first things they learned to do with our ancestors was Christianize them as a way to subjugate them. So what I wanted to do was return to what were the spiritual systems before Christianity? Um, what, what might we have been had we not encountered Europe in this sense? And so um, what I found was a lot of ancestral veneration, a lot of um, worship of nature itself, respect for nature itself, Um, A clear and present understanding of the masculine and the feminine. Um, One wasn't given a privilege over the other. Um, A really forward um, uh, contemporary understanding of gender, gender identity, and sexuality. Um, What struck me as so funny was how they called us primitive and savages And we were so far ahead of them in terms of what we think about in terms of gender, gender identity, and sexuality. The West is just now catching up with stuff that our ancestors been knew. So how were we the the primitive savages? So I wanted to incorporate all of that in there as a juxtaposition to say, this is what it looked like. And and look at how it looked after these so-called civilizers came in. They, they, They did the opposite of civilize. Um, And so, yeah, that that is why I I sort of brought those themes in.
0: You have a line and now I have to go find it because you mentioned it about, you know, what's primitive and what's not. Um, Oh, where I got like three pages of notes. (laughs) I'm trying to find it. (laughs) Uh, But it was basically about how, you know, they are they have no story without us they call us primitive they call us this they call us that when really if they're doing like they call us dirty but they push us down into the mud they break our fingers until we can't work anymore but uh and then they call us lazy like they don't teach us anything and then they want to call us slow witted. i was just like i, I love what i can find the commentary from the author woven into the story in the character's voice is like, that's not that's not all that's not all the character talking there and so I, I i found that in there but then what i also found was like in, in one of those earlier scenes before the trade of the, the bonding ceremony between elewa and Kosi. It's like can't you see they're bonded and it, it's like the same thing that maggie says to to um the, the aim is like, leave them alone. Like, nobody they're not bothering anybody. It's just the two of them. Like nobody was concerned about what they were doing.
1: Right. Um, that's on, uh, the, the, the line that you were talking about is on page 301. It's, uh, Samuel, um, talking and Samuel gave me permission to say that because Samuel's the angry one. So, you know, he's the one that would, would be most outraged at, at the stuff that he's seeing.
0: Yes. And so then my question from that paragraph that Samuel goes on, that kind of diatribe, it made me wonder, is to survive in America still the longing for death? Because he's having that conversation with Isaiah. And Isaiah's like, you know, I'm tired, but I want to live. And Sam's like, this isn't living, this is dying.
1: That is is the ultimate conundrum that we face as African diasporic people living in America. This country is founded on the idea and the principle of anti-blackness. We will never be at home here. We will never be safe here ever, 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 no matter who's president, because we can see when Barack Obama was um, elected and Barack Obama was only elected because of his proximity to whiteness. Nothing changed. They still were shooting down people, uh, Unarmed black people. They were still treating us like dirt and and and, and animals. Um, not even animals. They treat animals better than they treat black people. Um, nothing will ever change in this country. Ever. You can see. You can see it in how um, these white folks have responded to the idea of um, just a Democrat being in office. Just the idea that this Democrat might do something to help black people. They stormed the Capitol. Um, they, their entire identity is based on the degradation of Black people. And if they can't have the degradation of Black people, then they don't know who they are. And so they will always fight for that. And if they, if they're going to always fight for that, we are always going to be in danger.
0: And I think that's no more evident than your line early, early, early in the book where um, you're talking about a two bad woman's tears were the most potent of of potions on page 30. I was like, "Mm, that's still true. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, And it's, it's so, it's a weird trap for the, for the white woman because on the one hand she can turn on the tears and everyone will believe she's the victim without any evidence whatsoever. And she had, and white women have in real life used that to their advantage. But on the other hand, that doesn't work on, when, when she's saying it about white men. So she is, she can do that to black people, but that power doesn't work on white men because we see it now like with the Me Too movement. Um, white women don't get believed when they say, you know, Harvey Weinstein did X, Y, Z to me. People didn't believe them for a re- really long time. Um, they would believe it if, if she said somebody black did it to her, even if they didn't do it to her. Um, that's the price she pays is that she's gonna be subject to the white man's violence in exchange for her being above black people. She, she's made that deal. Um, and there's a price to be paid for that deal.
0: But then that also goes to the very notions of privilege. There's white privilege, there's white male privilege, there's black male privilege because they are still privileged over and above black women or other minority women there is, and, and and all of those nuances of how those privileges can work one against the other.
1: Yeah. Um, one of the things that I realized about when I was writing this book was um, the problem I had with the idea of innocence, because we all want to believe that we're the innocent victim of something. But innocence then makes us feel like we're above reproach or critique or accountability. So for example, I'm a Black queer person. And in those two intersections, I feel marginalized. I feel oppression. But I'm also a man. And I'm also cisgender, not transgender. I am also educated. Um, I also live in the West. Um, so in, in under those identities, I experience certain amounts of privileges and it's not a math equation i can't tell you how that works with the my um identities where i'm marginalized and and what score that makes me on the on the hierarchy but i can tell you that it means that i'm not innocent and that i too play some role in the oppression of someone else even if it's not intentional and that i would i must then constantly check myself and self-reflect on the ways in which I might inadvertently or on purpose do harm. And if I think of myself as innocent, I'm not doing that work. And so I'm, I'm perpetuating harms and thinking that I'm not. And so that was one of the things I wanted to show in the prophets was that everybody plays a role in this, no matter what identities they or, or, or intersected identities they exist at.
0: I think that comes across most clear in Amos, mm-hmm. like his intention of basically going after Isaiah and Samuel was to protect Essie, even though he was out there with Beyonce, but we both <laughs> <loved> well. <laughs> but that, that, that was his, that was his initial motivation and his intention. And that it brought all of this chaos and this havoc because I guess, in a sense where marginalized people are trying to curry favor and get closer to whiteness, they don't realize all the harm they're doing to everyone else around them that's just like them, that's trying to just make it day to day.
1: And then, um, right, so you mentioned um, Amos and Bianchi, and then Bianchi thinks she's doing Essie a favor by keeping Amos at bay because here she is, she just experienced this traumatic event and he's still trying to do something. And she's like, what's wrong with you? Um, if you need it that bad, then let me give it to you so you can leave her alone. So, but you know, so it's all of these intersecting and, um, differing perspectives about what's being committed. Is it harm or is it beneficial? So that was, that was kind of interesting to write.
0: But then even Beyonce's, um, almost like cast off of her true self because she's Beulah and then she's Beyonce. And then at the very end, Beula comes back. And it's like all the, all the <laughs> yeah, all the <laughs> yeah, all, all all the things and all the little machinations and, and considerations that we try to do to ourselves to assimilate or get by or or be in that box, they don't last. And I think the only person that recognized that from the beginning Well, not the only person, but one of the few people who recognized that from the beginning was Sarah. And she recognized it in Isaiah.
1: Sarah was one of my favorite characters to write because Sarah was the no bullshit character. She was like, I know who I am. I know who you are. I know what's possible. And I'm going to the moment I have the chance to do it, I'm going to do it. and I'm going to fight every step of the way. You're never going to make me bow to you. I'm going to fight. I'm going to be a problem for you. (laughs)
0: <laughs> um, yes. And she
1: was she was one of my favorite characters to write. And she's and she has a long memory. She remembers everything.
0: Her memory and then also Maggie's memory. But then in, mm-hmm. in Maggie's way to cope, it was like she she did not cast herself off, but she tried to make it seem as if she did, even though she was still practicing all of her rituals and 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 everything that she could remember. From the time before and then it made me wonder you know because as much as there's the shadow and the erasure of memory there's also the role of dreams and mm-hmm. and how they connect to spirit and deity especially in that moment right before you wake up and you mentioned it like right before you wake up and you still have that little bit of dreamland left it's all, not quite a lucid dream but it's right in that in between of the consciousness where you're most i guess vulnerable to be penetrated by something else from the spirit world
1: yeah that like that is the moment where you don't even know what's reality um where the dream still feels like this is i know who i am and i'm conscious that i'm dreaming but i i still feel like the dream is the real world um and it's it's fun to get into that space of that lim- liminality where um things can be most accessible that are beyond this realm um it's interesting to write about and think about
0: i also once you get toward the end of the book and you have the big scene where everything kind of comes to a head i got um it reminded me of a book i read a while ago the book of night living and Uh so i looked it up and i was like Marlon james was like oh he blurred this book <laughs> and so i was like oh that that was kind of a kinship but when everything comes to a head and it's like i don't know if you read the book of night women but when the, the final decision is made that okay it's a go on rebellion it, it, it was like there was no stopping and I, I found that similarity in when maggie's like okay here we go and it, it was no stopping and then it just everybody's out for themselves
1: yeah um Whereas the the rebellion in Book of the Night women was more organized. The in the prophets, it was more happenstance. There there was a series of events that finally somebody snapped. What I wanted to show was sometimes that's how rebellions happen too, because somebody just has at that moment that was the straw that broke the camel's back. They didn't plan it, but that is the straw that broke the camel's back, and that was it. So one person does something. Then the next person sees that and reacts to it. And then, then we have the chaos, the, the whole chaos. And I, I wanted those sections, um, the, the, the rebellion sections to feel like chaos where um, and feel sort of like they were unfolding in real time. So we don't know what's gonna happen. Um, because oftentimes that is how um, uprisings and rebellions occur. They occur in the moment. And I wanted that, that part of the book more than any other to feel like in the moment.
0: I got that. And then the fact that that chapter was named Exodus and the Israelites and the parting of the Red Sea. And even though in the Bible, that's such a neat story of, you know, Moses and the 10 plagues and everything happening. It's very neat. The way that you have laid it out and then making that parallel to the, to the Christian Bible, I can see where he's like, mm, it didn't happen like that. There is <laughs> chaos there, There. There is pandemonium there and there is there is uncertainty and not knowing, which you get later on in the Bible with, you know, the wandering in the desert and them not knowing literally. But it starts in Exodus. And I like that that was characterized there in that chapter. with that name.
1: Yeah. Um, I get a lot of questions about what happened to Sarah. Um, in that section. And um There are some people who are like, well, clearly something bad happens to her. And I'm like, not necessarily because Sarah's a fighter. So that is open ended on purpose because it is up to you to decide what what happened to Sarah in that in that
2: section.
0: I don't feel like it was a negative thing that happened to Sarah because it, it, it ends with a standoff and she's got her blade. And I'm like, well, I mean, I'm from the city where girls carry the razor blades in their mouth. So. Who knows what happened to Sarah. And, right. and I like that. I think my biggest question is what happens to Isaiah? You,
1: you know, know, um, a lot of people have asked me that question, too. So my mother says, who have found him? That is my mother's reading. My sister's reading was, the slave catchers found him. Um. My, a, a friend of mine said, the, the ancestors made themselves manifest to save him. And then another, a new friend said, I thought it was the Choctaw, the, the, the Native American tribe found him. Mm-hmm. So I was like, those are all really good interpretations. Mm-hmm. And it is completely up to the reader to decide what happened to Isaiah.
0: Initially, I thought it was poor. But then I was like, no. The ancestors have reclaimed him in some way, and then I was like, "It doesn't even matter." It reminded me of how Tar Baby ends.
1: And oh, with him going into the mist.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh And I was like, "Well, okay." I, I, <laughs> like Tar Baby was one of the was one of the first books I read where I was like, a book can just end and you not know, and and and, and it's okay. So when I got to the end, I was like, "Well, what happened to Isaiah?" I was like, "Nakisha, it doesn't even matter." It it, it doesn't matter what happened to Isaiah. His story has been told. And and, and that was the point. And then the invocation at the end from the ancestors. And I love the last lines. Nothing in creation is able to stop the coming. Nothing except you. It's like, it's a warning. And it's like, even though this is a story told from the past, it's still, we have to remember that the power is in us.
1: That, that's the prophecy. That is the prophecy. That's why this book is called The Prophets. It is not just the ancestors. Every single character in this book functions in some way as either a cautionary tale. Paul, for example, this is what happens to you when you wage, when you wage the wages you, you engage in or violence. Um, they, they visit you. That, 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 that's the energy you put into the universe. That's the energy that comes back to you. Threefold, um, it is the ancestors telling us who we are. It's Samuel and Isaiah telling us who they are. All of these things are prophecy because they, they're meant to make us pause and say, what do I have to do to be better? Not just for me to be a better person, but to make a contribution to this world so that it is a, it is a better place. That is up to us, that is the warning. Otherwise, what happens is destruction.
0: How has this book, Writing the Prophets, Publishing the Prophets, and all the praises that you've gotten from it so far, and that's still to come because it just came out in January, how has that changed your life?
1: One of the um, best ways it has changed my life is that I no longer have to work for a toxic employer. Mm. I am now a full-time novelist, Um, and that is thanks to the success of the book. Um, so I don't have to get up and go out and work for somebody that I know despises me. Um, but in, in, in a real practical way, um, I know that I can continue to do what I was. I think that I was put here to do for the rest of my days. I was recently diagnosed with multiple sclerosis
2: Mm.
1: and multiple sclerosis is a degenerative disease that um, disables you um, after a time. So you, um, your body doesn't function the way it normally does, your mind doesn't function the way it normally does. Um, and that terrifies me, um, but it also means that I have um, a finite amount of time to continue this work. So I have to make the best of my time here. My time here has to be spent making myself a better person, and I'm human so I'm gonna make mistakes and to do my part, do do what I can do to make this world also a better place. And the thing the thing that I think I can do that with is through the writing, through the storytelling. So the prophets makes that quite clear for me. Um, in other ways, it it also taught me to, know, to how, how to filter. Um, feedback, good or bad, because there are some people whose intention is to hurt me by the things that they say, or to lie to me or deceive me with the things that they say. So I realize that I have to have a circle of people who are going to be honest with me um, about me, about the work that I do. Um, and that I can't hear a zillion opinions because it's just... I, it's, it's too much, it's just too many people. I can't read every review and, and respond to every crit- critique, but I can have a trusted circle of people to whom I can say, does this have any validity? Can I be a better person? Did I do harm here? And, and who will be honest with me about th- those sorts of things. And I have found that community and sometimes in other writers like Disha Filia, who has been such a, who is now like a family member to me. In Mateo Ascarapor, who whose book was released on the same day as, as mine, who I find um we, we find a brotherhood in one another. Um, Donnie Walton, um, who I found out lives right down the block from me. Um, and so we we all have this kinship um of love and honesty that is um would not have been um possible if not for the prophets. That's beautiful.
0: Always that two questions. Um, do you feel like you're writing against the clock now after your diagnosis?
1: Yes, I do feel like I'm writing against the clock, particularly in terms of what might happen to my brain,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, because this is the tool that I use to write. Um, hands, you know, one of the symptoms of MS when you're having a flare-up, um, when when the disease is manifesting itself, is that you go numb. So for me, it's the right side of my body. I'm left-handed, thank goodness. Thank the ancestors, I'm left-handed. But the right side of my body goes completely numb. Mm-hmm. And not just numb, but painfully numb. So that if I touch the keyboard to try to type, it, it, t- it feels like I'm touching a hot stove. And so I can't do it. Um, my vision will get blurry. My speech will get slurred. My walking becomes a bit difficult. Um, my my head will be pounding. Um, I'll be in pain. So, when I have those moments, um, I think about how much more time do I have before these things become so debilitating that I can't even write anymore. So, yes, I feel like I'm racing against the clock. I'm, I'm 40 pages into the second novel, which I've had to put to the side because I'm um, doing so much work with the prophets. But once all of this stuff with the prophets starts to kind of you know, simmer down and such, I'm gonna go right back to that book and and do my research so that I can um, hopefully not take 14 years to write the second
0: novel. i In your acknowledgments, you mentioned Ernesto Mestre Reed, and the, well, everyone cautioned you not to, the danger of becoming a Black writer, and he helps you to see that there, there was no danger in that. What is the danger of becoming a Black writer? I would never heard that before.
1: When um, I was in the MFA program at Brooklyn College, there were four Black people in that program. It was myself, Maisie Card, um, who wrote These Ghosts Are Family, um, Raina Washington, and James Jennings. And in our first semester, we're all together. So it was 12, 12 of us. Four of us were Black. The rest were White or Asian or something not Black. And there were 12 of us. And we all took courses together for that first semester. But then the second semester, they split us up. And it just so happened that the way they split us up, we were ne- the Black students were never in the same classes anymore together. And I don't know if that was intentional or if that was to ensure that each of the classes had a, uh, a token black person in it so that it appeared diverse. Um, but we, were, we never took workshops ever together ever again for the rest of that program. And I was recently speaking to Maisie while I was doing the book tour. And she, we talked and found out that we were both experiencing racism in that program. Maisie, to the degree that she actually took a semester off and contemplated dropping out because that is how intense the racism was. For me, it was I was writing stories about. Well, about race, according to these people. But this young man once in in, um, the workshop, he said, Robert, you're always writing about race. You're in danger of becoming a Black writer. And that's not racist for me to say because my mother was raped by a Black guy. That's what he said. And that's what they let stand. So the the other students didn't say anything. The instructor didn't say anything. They just let that stand like it was okay for him to have that opinion and to say that out loud in this academic setting. When I went to the people in charge, they were like, he's entitled to his opinion which was curious because that same student wrote a story about um, a white woman who goes through all of these problems. And he said that white woman was inspired by a white woman that was in a class with us. And they chastised him for that. They said he had to stop doing that. Okay, so he had to stop doing that, but he didn't have to stop being racist. Okay, so I said, I understand what I'm doing here and let me just get this degree and get the fuck about this program. That was my perspective at that point, because it's ex- the one saving grace in that program was Ernesto Mestre Reed, because he was my um, advisor and my my workshop instructor where I really developed the profits. And he was the one that said to me, don't let anybody tell you anything different. You have a very unique voice. This is a very unique story. Please don't give up on this. And so I had to be sure to thank him in the acknowledgments for that.
0: In your journey with the prophets and bringing you to where you are now and everything that has happened, what have you learned?
2: I learned
1: that... Despite whatever obstacle, if you truly put your mind to it, you can accomplish what you wish to accomplish. And there were a lot of obstacles um, in terms of me trying to write this book. But you can do it, it might take a long time, but don't worry about how long it takes. Just try to do it anyway. And even in the trying to do it, you're succeeding because you're trying, um, as opposed to giving up. I also learned. that innocence is a crime, that um, James Baldwin said that, um, because it cuts you off from human accountability. Mm. Um, And I also learned that slavery is not the sin of black people. It is not our burden. It is nothing for us to be ashamed of. That's white people's shame. That's their sin. And that is why I included white characters in this book, because I had to put the sin into the hands of the people to whom it belonged. Um, those were the most compelling things I, I learned. And also, the, I think one of the most important things I learned was, I, I'm not a fan of the diaspora wars. Um, I love every black person on this planet, whether they are in Brazil or Canada or Great Britain, or Nigeria or South Africa or Kenya or Jamaica or Haiti. I love you by default until you give me reason not to, like, cause I'm not going to be a fool for you. If you're going to, if you mean me harm, I'm going to have to defend myself, but I love you. And I'm not going to let white supremacy turn me against you. And I'm hoping you will not let white supremacy turn you against me. Mm.
0: That's beautiful. I want to transition to a speed round before we get to our last question. and I saw something else in the acknowledgments which made me really happy. This inspired one of my questions. So first, what's your favorite book?
2: Oh my
1: God. Um, (laughs) My favorite book of all time is currently Paradise by Toni Morrison.
0: Who is your favorite author seeing the how You have two on the wall behind you.
1: Toni Morrison.
0: What is the first book where you saw yourself reflected on the page?
1: Home by Terry McMillan.
0: What brings you joy?
1: Nature. Being in nature.
0: What brings you peace?
1: Good food. Mm. Something my mother or my grandmother makes.
0: I love it. If you could be a color, what color would you be?
1: Wow. Because it is all colors. And it is the color of the cosmos.
0: If you could escape into and live as any type of being, what would it be?
1: Oh, my goodness. Um... Any type of being, I I think I would like to be um, maybe a star um, to live through that cycle for billions of years and and, um, get to see so much and experience so much from a grander scale. Maybe I'd want to be a star in the sky.
0: What role does religion or spirituality play in your life, if any?
1: Religion plays little to no role other than to teach me um, what not to be. Um, Spirituality, however, plays a huge role in my life in that it teaches me how to respect myself and others.
0: Um, My final question from the acknowledgments, what is your favorite Janet Jackson album or song?
1: My favorite Janet Jackson album is The Velvet Rope. And my favorite song by Janet Jackson is Got Till It's Gone from The Velvet Rope.
0: Okay, Okay. those are both my favorites. I saw that. I was like, oh, he's in a jam fam. I got to ask.
1: Whole time jam fam since since forever.
0: Yes. Ah, I love it. All right. So my last question uh, for the podcast You have been on this journey of acceptance as a writer and embracing being a storyteller since you were six. When you are no longer here, what would you want someone to write about your legacy?
1: That is the first time somebody asked me that question. What I would want them to say is, he tried his best, to be the kindest and most loving human being that he could possibly be. He made mistakes along the way because that is what it means to be human, but he also always told his truth as he understood it at the time. And also he left us good books.
0: Amen, I should. (laughs) should. Thank you, Robert, so much for joining me.
1: Nikisha, this has been um, this has been really an honor and a privilege. Um, I love the questions that you asked, and um, they made me think so deeply. and I appreciate you even wanting to talk to me. <laughs>
0: the pleasure was all mine. I'm gonna go ahead and stop the recording. I told y'all it was gonna be good. Big thank you to Robert Jones Jr. for joining me on Black and Published today. Make sure you check out his debut novel. Debut, and I'm going to claim it now, it's going to be award winning novel, The Prophets. And if you're not following Robert, follow him on the socials. He's at Son of Baldwin on Twitter and Facebook, and The Son of Baldwin on Instagram. That's our show for the week. If you like this episode and want more Black and Published, and I know you do, Go ahead and hit that subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you hear, leave us a rating, a review, a comment. Let us know who you'd like to hear on the show next. You can also follow Black and Published at Black and Published on Instagram and Twitter. We're at BLK and Published. And if you want to follow me, keep up with what I've got going on, head to my website, newrights.com. N-E-W-W-R-I-T-E-S dot com or you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Nikisha underscore Elise. That's our show for the week. I'll holler at y'all next time. Peace.